If you have your Bibles or in the bulletin, the scripture today comes from the book of Galatians, beginning at chapter 1, and we're reading verses 1 through 10, and it comes from the English Standard Version. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him for the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you to the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. For I am now seeking... For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This ends the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Ryan, for uh, leading us in prayer and also in the, in the Bible reading. Um, this morning, what we're doing is we're beginning uh, a series on the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians. And you can see on the cover of your bulletin, we've kind of entitled the series Free at Last, Paul's letter to the Galatians. And the reason that we're... Um, the reason that we're uh, looking at this particular letter together uh, so early on in the life of Grace Valley Church is pretty simple. It's this. The reason Grace Valley Church is here at all is because it started as a dream to see what we would call a gospel-centered church in the heart of Dundas. And so... Grace Valley Church wants to be a church that is gospel-centered, whatever that means. We're going to explore that later on. And obviously, if we're going to be a gospel-centered church, if we're going to kind of fulfill that dream as we develop and grow as a, a church community, we need to understand the gospel itself very, very, very well. And Paul's letter to the Galatians is all about the gospel, some of you are probably hearing me say that and then instantly in your mind thinking, isn't the whole Bible about the gospel? Isn't all Paul's letters about the gospel? Aren't all the gospels about the gospel? And the answer is yes, absolutely. But what is unique about this letter is that in it, the Apostle Paul drives home over and over and over and over again the core of the gospel. And this is essential. If you're a Christian, even if you've been a Christian for a long, long time, you need to understand that the gospel itself is the hinge, is the core, is the, the, 
the fulcrum of the entire Christian faith. And it can so easily be distorted in our minds. We can so easily fall away from it. Here, let me explain how this happens for Christians. Sometimes a Christian will say this. The gospel message, which simply put is, Jesus lived the life I should have lived and died the death I should have died. That's a very simple explanation of the gospel. The gospel message is for non-Christians. A non-Christian doesn't know the gospel, doesn't understand the gospel, doesn't believe the gospel. And so your job as a Christian is to share the gospel with them. And then they accept that gospel, they believe that gospel, and then they become Christians. And now when you're a Christian, you move on from the gospel, because you already know it, and you already accepted it, and you already believe it, to other things. See, the gospel is seen as sort of the way to get saved or the way to enter the kingdom of God. But now, a Christian is supposed to spend their time wrestling with the question and figuring out how they're supposed to live in that kingdom that they've entered in. And the point of Galatians is to say, no. Paul's point in Galatians is to say, no, the gospel is not the beginning point of Christianity. It's the beginning point, it's the middle point, and it is the end point of Christianity. It is the, the A to Z of the Christian faith. In a sense, what Paul is going to explain to us in, the, in this letter is that you, you never actually move on from the gospel. In fact, the gospel isn't just the way that you enter the kingdom of God. The gospel is the way you live in the kingdom of God. Here's what Galatians, hopefully, if you've been a Christian for a long time, or thought you've been a Christian for a long time, here's hopefully what the, what the book of Galatians is going to say to you over the next number of weeks. It's going to show you that you think you know the gospel, but you probably don't really know it very well. You think you've applied the gospel to your life, you've appropriated it, so to speak, but you probably haven't, at least not to the depth that it can go. You haven't understood how deep it can go, how far it can go. There is, the, the more you understand the gospel, this is sort of the paradox, okay? The more you understand the gospel, the more you realize you don't understand it. And I know that sounds weird, but let me explain it. I was an English major when I was in university, and so I had to read a lot of Shakespeare. Some of you probably think, oh, who would subject themselves and pay money to do that? But I actually liked it. So what I, I read a lot of Shakespeare, and what I discovered was the more I learned about Shakespeare and the more I knew about Shakespeare, the more I realized how little... I knew and understood Shakespeare. Do you get what I'm saying? Have you ever had that? The more you've sort of investigated a subject or an issue or whatever, the more you, you realize there's so much more to it than you actually know. Well, that's the very thing that we're going to understand, learn about the gospel. It is so easy to distort because we so quickly believe we've understood it, but we haven't. If you look at the front of your uh, bulletin, uh, you'll see a quote there from Martin Luther he was a 16th century reformer, and he wrote a, a, a commentary on the book of Galatians. And he says this at one point in that commentary. Here I must take counsel of the gospel. 
I must hearken to the gospel, which teacheth me not what I ought to do, for that is the proper office of the law, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, hath done for me, to wit, that he suffered and died to deliver me from sin and death. The gospel willeth, excuse me, willeth me to receive this and to believe it. And this is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consisteth. Great old language, eh? Most necessary it is, therefore, and he's writing this to pastors. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. And that's very Luther-type language to kind of get that plain spoken. Here's what we're doing for the next while. We're going to beat this gospel into our heads and hopefully also deeply into our hearts. For some of us, it will be the nth time. For some of us, maybe it will be the first time. That's the plan, though. So let's go to work on the, on the letter to uh, Galatians. First of all, just some introductory remarks. You'll also see that there is an outline on the back of your bulletin if you want to follow along with that. A few introductory remarks. The letter to the Galatians is different from the other of Paul's letters. Uh, it's different in several ways. First of all, it, has, it opens differently. It starts differently than Paul's other letters. And we'll get back to that in a, in a minute because it's pretty important. The other thing is, is that it was written not just to one church, like the letter to Philippians or Colossians or Ephesians or Corinthians or Romans. It was written to a group of churches. So Galatia was uh, an area of the ancient world that is now modern-day Turkey. And there were a number of churches in that area. And Paul writes one letter to a whole bunch of these churches. So that's unique as well, because that means that Paul wasn't dealing with a specific practical issue that had been raised in that church. And we'll see more of that as we go along. The third thing is, is that Paul's letter, when he opens this letter, he is harsh. He is blunt. He is aggressive. Usually, when Paul starts one of his letters, he starts with a salutation like he does in this one. You know, in verses 3 and following, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, etc., etc. That's, that's the same. But then usually he goes on to say something about how he thanks God for that church and how he's really uh, uh, praying for that church and they're close to his heart and it's warm and fuzzy, you know, he's buttering them up kind of thing, right? Not in this one. In this one, look at verse 6. The very next thing he does is he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting, deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Boom! He just brings the smack down on him right away. If you were to do a, like a modern paraphrase slash translation of, of what Paul says in this verse, you, you, would, you would say this, not I am astonished, you would say, I am freaking out. I am totally freaking out that you are so quickly deserting Jesus and his message. That's what you would say. Why? Because you're turning, he says, to a different gospel. Here's what was happening in these churches in Galatia. They were in danger of abandoning this gospel message that the Apostle Paul had brought them. How did that happen? Verse 7. 
Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Here's what was going on. Apparently, there was a group of people who had come from the church in Jerusalem, and they had traveled up to uh, Galatia, and they were teaching a different message than Paul. What they did was, was they came to these churches in Galatia, and they said, you know, Paul, he came up here, and he told you that you are saved by grace, and that you are saved through faith in Jesus Christ, and, and that's all very well and good, and that's true, actually. But Paul left some parts out. He left some very important parts out. What he forgot to tell you is that if you truly want to be a follower of Jesus, or a Christian, what you need to do is you need to adopt the Old Testament ceremonial laws that the uh, ancient prophet Moses had written down way, way, way back when in the Old Testament. Particularly, you have to adopt the practice of circumcision. That's very, very important. And Paul has left that out. And Paul is now writing this letter and saying, that message that I left something out, that you're supposed to get circumcised beyond just believing in Jesus, that believing in Jesus is not enough, he says that that is condemnable. It's the strongest language Paul uses anywhere in any of his letters. In verse 8, he says, let him be accursed. Here's what he's saying. If I come back to you, to the, to the churches in Galatia, which I planted. If I come back to you and I teach a different message than the message I taught you the first time, may I be condemned forever in hell. He talks about an angel in verse 8. If, if an angel were to say, here's what he's saying, if you go out in the woods and an angel appears to you with a couple of gold tablets and says that on these gold tablets is the latest revelation of God and it's different in one iota from what I taught you the first time, let that angel be condemned to hell. Now, you know what an angel is, right? Angel is a heavenly being, really, really beautiful, really, really smart, really, really powerful, really, really awesome. And Paul says, let them be condemned forever in hell. Now, understand, he's not saying, may they go to jail for a while, may they get a little bit of punishment. No, he says, any tweak... Anybody who tries to tweak this message in any way and, and make it a little different from the thing that I told you the first time, may they spend eternity separated from God. Do you think this question, this issue is important to the Apostle Paul? Duh, right? Okay, that's the summary. Those, that's the intro, introductory summary of what's going on here in these first verses. What we're going to do now is we're, we're going to pare it down to kind of three lessons, okay? Three lessons that were taught by, through what Paul says in verses 1 to 10 here, okay? Here's the first one. We're taught the inevitability of dogma. And I, I purposely use the word dogma because it's an old word, uh, that doesn't get used much, but it sounds so cool. Dogma. What is dogma? Dogma is teaching, is doctrine, is beliefs, okay? And what we're discovering here is that, that as Paul is writing to a, a group of churches, okay, he is not dealing with a local issue. 
He's not just talking to one church about sort of their, their little pet problems, you know, like which translation of the Bible is the best and should be used in a worship service or, or you know, should we have drums or should we have an organ? He's not dealing with those kinds of things. He's dealing with grand universal principles and issues. The issue he's dealing with is false doctrine. That's what he's talking about. Let me use another old word. He's dealing with the issue of heresy, which means that Paul is writing a polemical letter. These are fighting words, so to speak, okay? He is trying to argue with people about issues of what is true and what is false, what is right and what is wrong, what is real, what is unreal. It's polemical. He's arguing this point. Now, now, Don't miss the significance of this. Here we are, 21st century modern Canada, and most people in our culture would say, that's not a good idea. They would say, that's bigoted. That sounds intolerant. Because we're talking about beliefs here. People should be free to believe whatever it is they want to believe. Who who is Paul to think that he has the right to force his opinion down the throats of other people? Everybody needs to come to their own conclusions, their own moral conclusions, their own religious conclusions. They they need to come to their own beliefs. And this is why. Because they're beliefs. They're not facts. You see? In our modern culture, we say that facts are things that are objectively verifiable through the empirical method of science. If you've ever taken an introductory science class in college or university, you've heard these terms, right? This is the idea, okay? So this, this is made of metal. That's a fact. And the reason we know it's a fact is because we can observe the properties of metal in this music stand. So we could cut a piece off of it, we could stick it under a microscope, we could look at all the molecular structure and all that kind of stuff, and we would conclude with certainty that this thing is made of metal. That's what science is for. Science is about explaining to us facts, the things that are real and certain. Beliefs, however, are not objective. Beliefs are subjective. They're not, when I say objective, meaning they're not out there and can just be observed as true and verifiable through the scientific method. No, they're in here. They're subjective. They're dependent upon your uh, personality, right? They're dependent upon your culture. They're dependent upon the era in which you live. They're dependent upon all, sorry, dependent upon all those kinds of things. And therefore, people would argue that that this idea of of trying to impose doctrine is a very, very dangerous thing. That you would try to force someone to believe your opinions about things. And so we shouldn't do it. And so people would listen to hear Paul and saying, that is not true, that is not the truth, that is wrong, that is heretical. They would say, man, what's, what's with this guy imposing his beliefs on others the way he's doing? That's kind of how we think about things today. 
But let me ask you a question. Let's do a little bit of a thought experiment to see if that way of thinking really holds. And I'll just go right for the jugular, so to speak. Why did the Nazis kill the Jews? You don't have to answer, but I want you to think. Why did the Nazis kill the Jews? Now, you might say, well, that was an evil act. Okay, fair enough, fine. But why did they do it? Did, did someone, like, was there a group of SS people sitting around in a room one day, and someone said, let's do something evil. And someone else said, oh, yeah, let's. I've got a great idea for something evil. Of course not, right? That's not how it worked. The Nazis, they believed in something. They had a, a core belief about human nature, and this is what they believed. They believed that some races were inferior to others, that some races were less valuable than others, that some races were more expendable than others, and that for the good of the human race, it was important to actually eliminate those less valuable, more expendable races. But here's the thing. Science cannot prove the value of human life. It can't. The Nazis tried through a whole eugenics-type process, and they used phrenology and a whole bunch of weird science to try to demonstrate that somehow the Aryans were more superior, scientifically speaking, than the Jews and other ethnicities. And it was proven, scientifically, to be an absolute sham and a total falsehood. See, science, if you ask a scientist, what is the value of human life, scientifically speaking, they might be able to answer, well, I don't know, a human being is probably worth about 40 bucks worth of chemicals. That's the best they can do. The question of the value of human life is not a, sci is not a scientifically verifiable question. And yet, and yet, and here's the point. It's a belief based on dogma that you still hold to be true. If you say what the Nazis did was evil, if you say that you want to dedicate your life to stopping genocide, it's because you have a different dogma, a different belief from the Nazis about the value of human life. And it doesn't make it less true because you can't verify it in a lab. Here's my point, okay? Dogma shapes how you behave. Doctrine shapes how you live. You say your view of human nature is better than the view of the Nazis. And I say, you're right. I agree wholeheartedly with you. And the whole world has doctrines and beliefs and worldviews that they hold on to very, very dearly. And we're all trying to convince one another that ours is right. Someone who says to you, you can't oppose, impose your beliefs on someone else is trying to convert you to their view. You can't escape it. The question becomes, how do you know which doctrine, which set of beliefs are right, which are true? If we can't escape having them and holding them and trying to impose them on one another, how do we know we're right? You don't want to be wrong, do you? You don't want to hold false doctrine and false beliefs, do you? Of course not. No human being wants to do that. And that leads us to the second point. Oh, actually, before we get to that, 
let me just say that this works its way out in very personal ways as well. I've been talking about big issues, but it works its way out in very personal ways as well. For example, let's say you have a friend who is suffering terribly from depression. And you go and visit your friend. And you sit with that friend and they start telling you things like, life sucks. I suck. I'm worthless. Nobody cares about me. I'd be better off dead. And you sit with them in their living room and you look them in the eye and you say, no, life is beautiful. There is so much to live for. You are loved. I love you. Your family loves you. Your friends love you. You are a beautiful person. You have tons of reasons to live. What are you doing? What are you trying to do in that moment? You're trying to combat false doctrine. You're trying to show them that they're believing a lie, that they're holding on to a lie. You're trying to have the light of the truth pierce their soul. You can't prove scientifically, that life doesn't suck. But it's still true. And you still want to convince them of it. Okay, so, how, who's right? How do, we, how do we determine true doctrine versus false doctrine? Here's the Galatians, right? They've got Paul on one hand saying, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And they've got the Judaizers saying, saved by grace, through faith, and adherence to a bunch of Old Testament ceremonial laws. How do you evaluate which is right? And that leads us to the second point, which is the necessity of authority. Way, way, way long ago, I said, Paul introduced this letter differently than he introduces other letters. And here's one of the ways it's very different. Right there in verse 1, Paul says this, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Okay. Paul appeals to his what's called apostolic office, meaning he was designated an apostle. The word apostle, all it means is is sent, a sent person. But we learn from Scripture that there were apostles and then there were big A apostles. In Luke chapter 6, verse 13, we read that Jesus brings all his disciples around him. So there's a whole bunch of people who were followers of Jesus who he brought to him. And then it says that he chose from those disciples 12 to be his apostles. And those apostles were sent with a specific purpose to have Christ's authority to bring his message of the gospel. That's why the apostle Paul keeps saying here, he says, I wasn't sent from men or by man. In other words, what he's saying is, is, is I was, when he says, I was sent by Jesus Christ and God the Father, he's saying, when you listen to me, I have the authority of Christ himself. It's like you're speaking to Christ himself. It's as though you're talking to an ambassador of a country, right? When the ambassador of Canada goes to China and speaks on human rights issues, he is the voice of the prime minister. And what he says is what the prime minister says. So if, if the Chinese were to say, well, I'm not sure I like what you have to say about this, I'm going to go talk, call the prime minister. The prime minister would say, well, what did, my, what did my representative say? And they would say, well, your representative said X, Y, Z. And they would say, exactly, click. Well, maybe it wouldn't go click. It's probably a little more 
polite than that. But the idea that Paul is, is emphasizing here is that when you hear from me, you are, you are hearing from our Lord. And not just from our Lord Jesus Christ. You are hearing from God the Father. You are hearing from the Creator. And this is really important right now. Even in the church, this is a, an important thing to remember because there's some debates going on in the church about pretty important issues, uh, about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, how one's supposed to live, what to do with different aspects of our humanness as a Christian in today's modern world. And you'll hear arguments like the following. You'll hear, well, Paul says so-and-so about this issue, but Jesus says so-and-so, or Jesus said nothing about it at all. And when you have to make a decision, you always choose Jesus over Paul. You can't do that. Because Paul is saying, when you speak to me, you're speaking to Jesus. When you hear from me, you are hearing from Jesus. We can't pit the Gospels against Paul's letters. Can't do that. And, and notice again, he says that I was sent by Jesus Christ and God the Father. And it's very important that he, he includes God the Father, because now he's appealing to the author, to the creator. God the Father is the one who made everything, the one who made the universe. How, how, do, you know your, how do you know who to listen to? Okay, there's, there's basically three ways that we try to figure out who to listen to and, and make decisions about what we believe. You have your tradition, okay, uh, and you have your heart, <laughs> and then you have some outside authority. So the so the traditional way of thinking about things is, is saying, well, this, we do this, I believe this because this is what my tribe believes. This is what my family believes. This is what we've always believed. This is how we do things. And because this is how we do things, this is how I do things, right? So my father always did X and therefore I do that. Or my, my uh, grandparents did whatever and so I do that too. Or my ethnic community, you know, I come from the Nigerian community, and in Nigeria, that's what we do, and so that's why I do what I do and believe what I believe. So there's that. Then there's the more modern sort of Western approach, which is, I follow my gut, right? I believe what I want to believe. I, I follow my heart. I follow my feelings, Okay, I once heard, in, in a kind of a sarcastic way, but extremely, I thought, poignant way and, and very incisive way, I heard Tim Keller call this way of, of living, you know, when you say you follow your conscience, you know, I let my conscience be my guide, that's the Jiminy Cricket way of living, right? Let your con always let your conscience be your guide. That's what Jiminy Cricket said, right? And Tim Keller's response to that was, oh, Jiminy, serial killers have been saying that for decades, Look, we can justify any kind of behavior we want if we work hard, hard enough at it. And we can clear our consciences if we work hard enough at it. Both of these approaches, this sort of traditional way and this, this individualistic way, one's kind of communal, one's very individualistic, so one's kind of traditional and one's very modern. They're both what you could call inside-out approaches, right? They come from inside, inside a group or inside an individual, but they're subjective. And because they're subjective, they should be suspect because things change all the time. What did people believe about sexuality 100 years ago? 
What do people believe about sexuality today? It's radically different. What did people believe about the value of human life 500 years ago? What did they believe about that 1,000 years ago? It's changed. And so we should be suspect of sort of these inside approaches. That's what, what Paul is kind of condemning. When, and what he's offering is an outside-in approach. He's offering revelation. He says truth that is dependable, that is certain, that is unchanging regardless of the date and time in which you live, comes from the creator, from the author, from the one who made it. And that's why it's dependable. That's why you can be sure of it. That's why you don't, you don't have to suspect it. We all need an authority. This is the one that Paul says we should put our trust in because it comes from the one who made everything. And therefore, he knows what everything is for. What's your sexuality for? Do you know? Who are you going to ask? Cosmo? You're like, oh, I don't read Cosmo. I read Men's Health. Okay, you're going to ask Men's Health? You're going to ask your friends? You're going to ask your parents? Ew, that's kind of yucky. Ask God. He says, I made your sexuality. I know what it's for. Now, what you might be asking now is, well, how can I trust that? How can I be sure that I can trust that authority in my life rather than my tradition or myself or whatever beyond just saying one is subjective and the other is objective? What, what's going to get me to step over into actually letting go of the reins of my life and, believing in the, and trusting in the reins of God? And the answer is the last point. And that is the essence of the gospel. What's great about Galatians is Paul is going to explain the gospel over and over and over again in all kinds of different ways. And he, but he loves the gospel so much. Already in verse 4, he summarizes it this way. He says, Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. You can summarize... The essence of the gospel in that one word Paul uses right there, deliver. Another translation uh, uses the word rescue. This is what makes Christianity unique, okay? Christianity, among all the systems of thought in the world and among all the religions in the world, is the only one that says that, that, being, that we are saved through rescue, through deliverance. You talk to Confucius, you talk to Buddha, you talk to Muhammad, and you ask them, did you come into the world to rescue the world, to deliver the world? And they'll say, no way. I came to teach. I came to enlighten. Maybe they'll say, I came to condemn, but they will not say rescue. Only in Christianity does God come into the world and say, I have come to rescue you. Can you imagine, here's a person, you're... you're at the pool, and you see a person who can't swim, you see them drowning, okay? They're about to die. And you stand at the edge of the pool, and you start yelling at them, swim! Kick your feet! Flail your arms! Stop trying to breathe underwater! It doesn't work. Is that any help to them in that moment? No, they can't swim. 
They don't know how to do it. What you need to do is you need to dive in and you need to grab them and you need to swim them to shore and throw them up on the, on the side of the pool. You need to rescue them. Every other faith tradition does essentially that, according to the Bible. See, we, are, we need to be rescued from our sins. And according to Scripture, every other, every other religion in the world says, says to us who are drowning in our sin, swim! Only in Christianity do you have God himself and the person of Jesus Christ coming in and doing it for us. Even, even those Judaizers that Paul is mad at and freaking out over, they were doing the same thing. They were telling people who were dying in their sin, Swim! Get circumcised! Follow the Old Testament laws! They're going back to that. See, the gospel is, is that Christ rescued us. He grabbed us while we were drowning. He pulled us to safety. And the way he did it is described in there in verse 4. He gave himself for our sins. He gave himself for our sins. That word for means he substituted himself. He put himself in our place. You know when they make those Hollywood action movies and they've got the, the handsome star, right? Like Brad Pitt. Everybody knows Brad Pitt's a pretty handsome dude. I can say that, right? He's a handsome guy. He's the star of the film, but he's in this, this uh, you know, in this, this war movie or something and there's bombs going off and stuff like that. Whenever he has to do a stunt, he doesn't do them himself. What do they do? They, take in the, they put in the stunt double. Because he can't get his pretty face all beat up, like, for good. Or, and he can't certainly get killed because he's a big money maker. So they put the stunt double in to do the dangerous stuff for him. Well, the gospel is, is that Jesus was our stunt double, but he didn't just risk his life in order that you and I could gain all the praise and accolades uh, of being the star. No, he gave his life. He substituted himself and died in our place. That's why you can trust his authority. He proved his authority through his death and his resurrection. Do you have a really good friend that you trust really, really well? Implicitly? Maybe you'd say, to, say about that friend, you know what, I, I trust them so much because they, they'd take a bullet for me. That's precisely what Jesus did. He took a bullet for, for us. And it says that he did it to rescue us from the present evil age. Now this, I've been thinking about this one for a long time. What does Paul mean by that? Rescue us from a, the present evil age. When you hear that phrase, present evil age, maybe you're like me and you think about like all the horrible things that happen. It's like, like the zombie apocalypse kind of stuff, right? Like there's terrible warfare around the world and there's strife and people killing each other and it's just horrible. It's all... But Paul talks about his age as being the present evil age and, and we're talking about our age as being the present evil age, but we had different problems compared to one another in our age. Some of them were the same. Things don't change necessarily all that much, but there's lots of differences. What, what does it mean then for, for the age to be present? And are we still... Is the age still... Evil? We would say yes. And so, I think Satan is a lot smarter than we are. And a lot more subtle than we, we would like him to think. We can think about a zombie apocalypse and think about that as being sort of the present evil age. 
But you know, if that was a present evil age, but way back then, and all the times in between have been a present evil age, it seems that, that the present evil age is something underneath the symptoms that we see in front of us. Slavery, way back when, today, you might say, um, tyranny, or uh, you know, human trafficking, or something like that. Some of those existed then, and they exist now. But, you know, if, if we could identify those things, if Satan was, like, really piling on the evil in a very, very stark and obvious way, don't you think that, that it would be a lot easier to convince people of the Christian faith? Satan is more subtle. He's been keeping this present evil age kind of going. And, you know, one, one author put it this way. He said, the safest road to hell, road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. See, the present evil age that Paul's talking about is, is a subtle evil that, that erodes from within. It's the corruption underneath the things we see. Talk to an addict. Talk to a recovering addict. And they'll tell you their addiction is rarely about really just, I just wanted to get high because it's fun because it felt good. There was more to it than that. It was, it was about the suppression of pain. It was about the overcoming of insecurity. It was about the, the attempt to give them a certain sense of, of self-worth. We see lots of problems in the world. We see consumerism. We see militarism. We see racism. We see isms here, there, and everywhere, and they're all bad. We see greed run amok outside and inside the church, frankly. But behind that is this radical individualism, this love of self. Whether it's done collectively, one nation trying to suppress and oppress another, or group of people trying to oppress another, or when it's done individually, when I just make sure that, that it's, it's me instead of you and me over you, me despite you. That's what Jesus came to rescue us from. He came to rescue us from ourselves and from our love of self. Last thing very quickly. In verse 10, notice he says, Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Some of those Judaizers, they were saying, uh, you know, Paul, he soft-pedaled the, the real truth, you know, because you wouldn't like him very much. If he came and he told you, uh, you need to be circumcised, how would a middle-aged man feel? That's not a great prospect, is it? And so they said, he left that stuff out because it was too hard to hear. And Paul's saying, uh-uh. Saying, in fact, the gospel of grace is far more offensive. It's far more offensive. Because the gospel of grace says there's absolutely not a single blasted thing that any one of you could ever do, no matter how good a person you are, to give you even one peg up in, close, in being closer to God than anybody else. Not a single thing. When you realize that you have, you've needed to be rescued, Paul says that's what gives you true freedom. Now you're not worried about what people think of you. Like him, you would rather be a servant of Jesus who gave everything for you, you want to give everything to him. Let's pray. Wow, Father.
we barely scratched the surface, but there is so much depth here in just these first few verses of Galatians. Help us take what we heard, use it in our lives, become more gracious because we have received more grace. Do this, we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.